You're listening to East Bay Yesterday, the podcast that looks back at stories from Oakland, Berkeley, Richmond, and other towns throughout Alameda and Contra Costa County. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. His fingers around here? Yeah, that's me. Oh, hey, I'm Sarus. Good, how are you? How you doing? I emailed you. Yeah. I want how you doing? Welcome to East Bay Yesterday. I'm Liam O'Donoghue. It's springtime. Flowers are blooming. The sun is shining into the evening, and baseball is back. The Oakland A's opened their season earlier this month. The team's new slogan is rooted in Oakland, and it couldn't be more apt. The Warriors are leaving for San Francisco in 2018. The Raiders are leaving for Las Vegas in 2020, but organized professional baseball has been played in the East Bay for quite a long time, and with the A's scouting locations for a new stadium in Oakland, it looks like that tradition will continue. This week's episode is going to be a little bit different than usual. I'm excited to announce we have our very first contributor. A few months back, Oakland-based journalist Sarus Faravar reached out to me with the idea of covering the history of Oakland baseball. I'm talking about teams that played here before the A's, including a Chinatown team and quote-unquote Negro teams. Of course I said, yeah, go for it. So that's what we've got today. Here's Sarus Faravar with a look at the roots of our national pastime right here in the East Bay. One of the first teams to play in Oakland was the Oakland Colonels. Pictures taken in 1890 show a group of dapper young ballplayers, half of whom are wearing upturned mustaches. Their manager, Colonel Tom Robinson, stands proudly at the center of the photo in a bowler hat and suit. Today, roughly 130 years later, the Colonels live on as part of the Bay Area Vintage Baseball League. That's a modern-day reincarnation of baseball of that era. It's a gentleman's game. All the players are wearing gorgeous wool jerseys with short-brimmed caps done in a late 19th century style. The umpire, who's properly addressed as Sir, wears a top hat, a three-piece suit, with tails. It's incredible. So we're out in Dublin on a cloudy day. I'm looking to play some 1880s baseball. Again, Casey Hammonds, better known as Fingers. He's the manager and pitcher for the Dublin Aces, who are hosting the Colonels today at Fallon Sports Complex, just off the 580. First thing you'll notice is the gloves we use. Uh, they're basically gardening gloves. There's no webbing. It's just enough so your hand doesn't absolutely sting. It still hurts. You can ask a first baseman just from warm-ups, his hand's probably going to be hurting. Some of the rules that are different are the seven balls to walk instead of four. And foul balls, which are called unfair hits, don't count as strikes. So you can un- hit three tips and you still have no strikes on you. If you get hit by a ball, you don't get your base. You just shake it off and you get back in there. For pitchers, you'll notice we don't have a mound. It's a box from 50 to 57 feet. You just got to stay inside that box when we're pitching, or what we call back then hurling. Frankly, even watching these guys taking batting practice, it looks tough. Catching a baseball in a tiny glove seems practically impossible. Hitting isn't a cakewalk either. 
the bats weigh 40 ounces, noticeably more than modern bats. The best way I've ever heard this described is it's like a Civil War reenactment, but you don't know the outcome. So you get to put on all the uniforms, the gear, use the lingo, you know, we call them rookies muffins. Uh, everyone gets funny nicknames. Just a few minutes later, when I walked over to check out the colonels, I ran into Matthew Chops C, who was giving his team a pep talk. All right, here we go, guys. Leading off, playing behind, we have Chops. That in second, playing short, we have Professor. That in third in the box today, we have Tools. That in fourth, playing second base, we have Mule. That in third base, playing, or that in fifth, Goldie. That in sixth, playing the right garden, Bull. That in seventh, in the center garden, Buck. That in eighth, in the left garden, Scout. That in ninth, playing first base, Brew. Bat in 10th, playing everywhere, squeak! And bat in 11th, last but not least, stirring it up, we got Chitty! Honorable mention to Boom today. Boom! Come on, boys! Here we go. I say Oakland, you say Colonels. Oakland! Colonels! Let's have some fun. As I watched a few innings unfold, it struck me that while it may seem silly at first blush, it's still baseball. Guys pitch, guys hit, guys miss balls hit over the shortstop's head, there's still the crack of the bat and the cheer of the crowd. Even if on this day there were more ball players than spectators. Nineteen o three marked a new chapter in Bay Area baseball history, the Pacific Coast League. The idea was to really professionalize regional baseball like never before. The six initial teams included the Los Angeles Angels, the Portland Beavers, the Sacramento Solons, the San Francisco Seals, the Seattle Indians, and finally the Oakland Oaks. Their first year, the Oaks were terrible. They finished in last place. Initially, the Oaks played in Freeman's Park at the corner of 59th and San Pablo. It could seat 7,000 people. But one of the tough realities for Oakland was that it has always played second fiddle to San Francisco. Remember, we're losing the Warriors. There's simply always been more people with more money on the other side of the bay. And more people means more baseball fans, even after the Oaks won the PCL championship in 1912. That's according to Mark McRae, one of the leading amateur historians of the PCL. Oakland had a brand new ballpark when Freeman's Park ceased to exist after the 1912 season. The brand new Emeryville ballpark was built in 1913. you think that would be a reason to have everybody come out and support the team. That wasn't the case. Despite the new park, the Oaks couldn't catch a break in those early years. The team finished last again in 1913 and 1914. 1915 was marginally better. But in 1916, the team started to really look around for some new players who could bring some life into the squad. That's where they found Jimmy Claxton, a Canadian-born pitcher who had come down to play semi-pro baseball in the area. Claxton initially played for the Oakland Black Giants, a semi-pro black team. He was signed to the Oaks, passed off as an American Indian. Claxton only lasted less than three innings of work across two games of a doubleheader. In the end, it was two and one-third innings pitched, four hits, three runs, two earned, four walks, and no strikeouts. 
The Redskin has a nice wind-up and a frightened look on his face, but not quite enough stuff to bother L.A., the San Francisco Call noted. He lasted two innings. However, he may do better in the future. Except there was only one problem. Claxton wasn't Indian, but rather black. He was promptly booted from the team. This was decades before Jackie Robinson broke the modern-day color barrier in 1948 with the Brooklyn Dodgers. On Claxton's Canadian marriage certificate, which still survives to this day, there was this line, quote, The bridegroom is a colored man, the bride a white woman. Still, Claxton was the first African-American to play organized white baseball in the 20th century, and he played for Oakland. By coincidence, Claxton was photographed during the only week that he was with the club on a Z-Nut baseball card, which is part of why his legacy survives today. It's important to remember that the 1910s were a crucial decade in the history of Oakland. The Bay Area was just coming off of the aftermath of the 1906 earthquake, and Oakland's population was rapidly growing. Some of the city's most iconic buildings, many of which remain standing, were built during this period. City Hall, the Oakland Civic Auditorium, and the 16th Street train station in West Oakland. Over in East Oakland, the Chevrolet assembly plant began churning out cars at a rapid clip. The same year that Claxton played for the Oaks, 1916, was the same year that Jack London died. Even back in the early 20th century, there were local, semi-pro baseball clubs. While they weren't segregated by law, they were essentially segregated by informal practice. Remember the Oakland Black Giants, Claxton's first club? If the Oaks wouldn't let a black player on their team, then they surely wouldn't allow any Latino or Asian players either. So, some of those men started their own teams. It's about 1920, 1923, Wasung became the Wasung Athletic Club. And it was called originally the Chinese Nine. They played sandlot baseball in what they used to call Auditorium Field. It's now, uh, I believe, Laney College. That's Doris Lum. She's a lifetime member of the successor organization, the Wasung Service Club. Today, Wasung is an important group based in Oakland's Chinatown. Have you or your kids ever played on the Chinese junk ship next to Lincoln Elementary School on 10th Street? You have Wasung to thank for that. Chinese and Chinese Americans have been in California for nearly two centuries. Tens of thousands came during the gold rush. More came to help build the Transcontinental Railroad, which was completed in 1869. That railroad ends right here in Oakland. But in 1882, the federal government passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, which made it all but impossible for new Chinese to immigrate. The ones that were here largely couldn't leave. Worse still, those people couldn't become citizens. But when the 1906 earthquake came, uh, everybody scattered to the wind because San Francisco wasn't safe anymore. So they all came to the East Bay, per se, and Oakland became a really a hub of Chinese. But because of the fear from the, I hate to say, white people, they made them stay in a certain block from below 8th Street to the pier. But the pier was straight directly across San Francisco. So you just come right across, here you go, and here's your community. One of the founding members of the Wasung Athletic Club was a young pitcher named Al Bowen. Again, Pacific Coast League historian Mark McRae. Bowen's background is sort of interesting because his father, as I recall, or grandfather, was a very prominent Chinese-American. And apparently around 1910 era, 1920s, when Oakland was developing the Fruitvale District, the family wanted to move there, but because of laws and generally accepted, uh, they did not want Chinese to be living in Fruitvale. Well, the Bowen family had, at the time, their name was two words, Bo, B-O, and then the second word was Wen, W-E-N. 
and he couldn't buy it that way, they Americanized the name and combined it to Bowen, making it Irish. And essentially, that's how they got into Fruitvale, and they were among the first Chinese-American families in Fruitvale. In a story about Hua Sung in 1926, the Oakland Tribune even wrote, Chinese Babe Ruths may someday dominate America's national pastime. So Albert Bowen, who grew up in Oakland and attended Oakland High School, class of 29, joined Wasung as one of its founding members. With Bowen uh, particularly, he's a very interesting person in PCL history. Uh, Sacramento, during the early part of the 1932 season, had recruited a player named Kenzo Nishida, a Japanese-American, and he had appeared just on the field. He didn't appear in too many games, but every time he came out to the, the field in Sacramento, the local Asian community came out and sponsored him. The Oaks came up with this brilliant idea to bring uh, Albert Bowen uh, onto the Oaks. And when Sacramento came to town around Labor Day, they had this Asian duel, as it was uh, you know, represented in the newspapers. The Nishida-Bowen matchup wasn't just the first pro baseball game in America featuring a Japanese-American and a Chinese-American player. That game had political overtones, too. Just one year earlier, the Japanese military invaded Manchuria, a Chinese province. Nishida came up with Sacramento in the wake of his newfound political interest in Japan. He was a tiny pitcher with a good curveball. He stood just five foot one and was reportedly 100 pounds soaking wet. Oakland likely thought they could drum up a Chinese-Japanese rivalry by countering with Bowen. In fact, to make him seem even more Chinese, he was given the name Lee Gum Hong. Bowen couldn't have been any more different. He was a power pitcher and stood at six foot two. So neither man wound up with the win that day but there was about 3,000 Chinese fans that filled Oaks Park. They just went crazy, and they're throwing firecrackers, they're cheering on, on Lee Hong, and it's a complete success. Gary Chiridkowski is the author of the book The League of Outsider Baseball. He was interviewed about it on WBR Boston in 2015. To get 3,000 fans out to see two lousy teams in 1932 in the depths of the Depression, that was a huge deal. I mean, these people really came out in droves to support their guys. It's interesting to me that the Pacific Coast League didn't continue to tap into that. While Wasung was doing its thing and the Oakland Oaks were as hapless as ever, there was also something called the Berkeley Colored League. As the name suggests, it was a group of black baseball clubs that played locally in the Bay Area. Reportedly, it was the only black league west of the Mississippi. They played all their games at San Pablo Park in West Berkeley. One of the top black teams was the Berkeley Pelicans. During the summer of 1934, the Oakland Tribune organized its annual statewide semi-pro baseball tournament. As the Tribune reported on July 28, 1934, The Pelicans have as one of their pitchers a Chinese boy. This boy, Albert Bowen, has been pitching for the Wasung AC and a few years ago had a tryout with the Oaks. Lionel Wilson is the youngest hurler on the roster, and while not tipping the scales over 140 pounds, has plenty of stuff in the ball, as he showed when he southpawed the Oakland natives into submission. Even more incredibly, 44 years later, in 1977, Lionel Wilson would become the first black mayor of Oakland. It's hard to underscore how unusual this was for the time. A Chinese pitcher on a black baseball team? At a time when all of America was segregated and redlining enforced housing segregation, even in Oakland, this was incredible. But somehow, in the 1930s Bay Area, such a team could take on other local squads with no issue. 
The Berkeley Colored League eventually was rebranded as the Berkeley International League in 1935. As the name implied, the league itself was integrated, meaning black teams played white teams and also Asian teams as well. However, with perhaps the sole exception of the Pelicans, the teams themselves were not integrated. The BIL made a point of providing an organized method to have a bunch of diverse local teams play each other. There were even Latino teams, including the Tijuana Grill and the Aztec Stars. Wasong disbanded in 1938 as many of the ballplayers didn't have time for baseball as war was brewing. It's not clear exactly when the Berkeley International League disbanded, but it was probably around the same time, or perhaps even in the early 1940s. After World War II, in 1946, a group of local entrepreneurs created the West Coast Baseball Association, also known as the West Coast Negro League. It consisted of the Los Angeles White Sox, the Portland Rosebuds, the San Diego Tigers, the San Francisco Sea Lions, the Seattle Steelheads, and the Oakland Larks. One of the Larks' top players was none other than Lionel Lefty Wilson. When most people think of the classic Negro League with the Kansas City Monarchs and the Birmingham Black Barons and other teams, that was founded in 1920. But none of those teams played in the Western U.S. Given the success of the Negro League in other parts of the country, its Bay Area organizers thought that the West Coast Negro League could succeed for a couple of reasons. Well, number one, they knew that there were no other major league teams anywhere in that vicinity. And so they thought perhaps that the West Coast version of a Negro Leagues would be successful because they weren't surrounded by any other major league teams. That's Bob Kendricks, the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City. And I think the other thing that probably gave the West Coast Negro Leagues organizers some hope and belief that it could succeed was the success that winter ball had had out in that part of the country. So many of the Negro League stars had traveled out west to play winter ball and, and drew huge crowds when they were out there playing. But, you know, it, it just, just it unfortunately just did not have the same legs. And it wasn't that the teams were necessarily that bad because they really actually had some pretty good players scattered amongst those and, and, and you certainly could make a case that the, the Larks, who were leading the league when the league disbanded, really had some very talented players on that team. The West Coast Negro League ended about six weeks after it began, and the teams began barnstorming or touring in other parts of the country, playing against whoever they could find. That included bringing baseball to parts of the country that didn't have as much of a well-established baseball culture. Again, Pacific Coast League historian Mark McRae, who did interviews with some of the last remaining Larks players. It was in one of the Dakotas, as I recall. I've got it on tape. I'd have to dig it out, but I think it was in North Dakota. Uh, they did a, a, a barnstorming up there, and the only place that they could stay the night was in the local jail because none of the hotels would let them stay. Once the Larks disbanded, Wilson decided to pursue a career in the law. He attended Hastings Law School in 1947 and was the only black student from Oakland. He was just one of 13 black students in the entire class. Straight out of law school in 1950, Wilson became chairman of the Alameda County NAACP. A decade later, he was the first black judge in Alameda County. Eventually, he was elected as Oakland's first black mayor, a position he held for 14 years. In 1955, the Oakland Oaks moved away to Vancouver which meant that Oakland was without a team for about 13 years, until the Kansas City Athletics moved in. They were renamed the Oakland A's. Come on, guys. You know the chant. 
Let's go, Oaklench. Let's go, Oaklench. Let's go, Oaklench. For East Bay Yesterday, I'm Saruz Faravar in Oakland. Big thanks go out to Saruz Faravar and everybody who spoke with him for this episode. You can subscribe to East Bay Yesterday on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. You can also follow East Bay Yesterday on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where I post photos related to each and every episode, as well as upcoming events and other cool local history news. There are links to all those social media pages at eastbayyesterday.com. Thank you so much to everybody who's been sharing East Bay Yesterday episodes on social media. Every single share is appreciated. And tell people about it in person, too. If you enjoy the show, please spread the word. Music for this episode was provided by James Scott, Tiny Parnum, Sid Valentine's Patent Leather Kids, Kathleen Martin, Jazar, and Urbano Zafra. The theme song music came from Anatech. Thanks so much for listening to East Bay Yesterday. I'm Liam O'Donoghue. See you next time. <laughs>